0: organization for many years he served as our president in 1965-66 virtually every important committee and project over the last 10-15 years has had the benefit of his participation the council he helped spearhead our research center fundraising drive and with the exception of margaret april i can't think of anyone who experiences more battlefield tours than he has now since we're going to hear about the bluegrass state tonight i thought it might be appropriate by way of introduction if i were to quote an eminent kentuckian uh, many of whom uh, many of you will uh, recognize the name i don't know if anyone is here tonight who heard him uh, when he delivered a rather memorable address william h Towns and mr townsend once said about our founder ralph newman he said he is a gentleman and a scholar and a fine judge of good kentucky whiskey well our speaker this evening is most certainly a gentleman and i think we all are aware of his uh, scholarly pursuits and i can attest personally to the fact that he is a fine judge of kentucky whiskey (laughs) At any rate, it is a very genuine pleasure tonight uh, for us to hear the Perryville campaign from our past president and very good friend, Brooks Davis.
1: Thank you, Glenn, for those words in direct uh, opposition to some of the others I've heard this evening. (laughs) The battle of Perryville, not Perryville, also is called the Battle of Chaplin or Chapin Hill, And a talk about this battle cannot be made without thinking about the late mayor, mayor of Herazal, Arthur Coyle. He was the mayor of Herazal and was instrumental in preserving that field and I would like to dedicate this talk to him. According to the Herald Tribune of October 11, 1862, which was selling for two cents at the time, George's cavalry was at Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. The Sioux were surrendering in Minnesota, and the Union had won a great victory at Corinth. The feature story, however, was entitled "Great Battle in Kentucky," and was accompanied by a map. The story read: Early yesterday morning. General Buell attacked Bragg's forces at Chaplain Creek in the immediate vicinity of Perryville. A short but terrific fight ensued when the rebels broke and retreated rapidly over three diverging roads southward, our forces in close pursuit. It is hoped that the whole lot will be bagged. At last, the count, General Gilbert's forces were in the rear of the rebels and some distance below them. The military exigencies the require the suppression of the details. No further accounts of the losses have been received. Date Line Louisville. Friday, October 10th, 1862, 1 p.m. The later account reads, our force was about 15,000 infantry, assisted by eight battles, eight batteries of artillery, twenty-five hundred cavalry, but this force was reinforced before the close of the day. Louisville is in great excitement respecting the fate of our soldiers in the pending battle and follows. General Buell fought a great battle with Bragg's army yesterday at Perryville, gaining a signal and decisive victory. Bragg is used up. The further dispatch stateline Cincinnati reads, General Buell's forces drove General Bragg's nearly 10 miles on Thursday and with great slaughter. General Buell had his forces well in hand. On the other hand, the New York Times of October 27 quoted the Richmond Dispatch, of the 18th. It seems that our forces under General Bragg have gained a great victory over General Buell. Our loss was 5,000. The present position of our army is unknown, but doubtless they are in pursuit of the enemy. The stories and their picture of the situation, the terrible immediacy of the war, and the old phrases give an idea of the reaction to war 1862 conflict and the confusion of the dispatches can perhaps be resolved by a careful examination of the whole Kentucky campaign. Confederate fortunes of war in the West had reached a low ebb by the late summer of 1862 with practically the whole of Tennessee, North Georgia, Northern Alabama, Mississippi held by the Union forces. I recently chanced upon a letter in the National archives, written by General P.T.G. Beauregard to Adjutant General Samuel Cooper, Dateline Mobile, five September 1862, in which he outlined a grandiose plan, and he did that on occasion, to capture Louisville and Cincinnati, along with western Tennessee, resumed the command of the Mississippi, Tennessee, and Cumberland Rivers, and invade missouri now general bragg and other confederate military authorities had, had similar thoughts about a bold joint offensive move toward the north somewhat in the same scope as the one planned by general grant in the winter of 1863 but of course in reverse the advance would be on three fronts lee into maryland Bragg from Tupelo, Mississippi, and Kirby Smith from Chattanooga into Kentucky. Van Dorn and Price up the Mississippi River, joining with Bragg at some point along the Ohio River. General Lee, of course, was stopped at Sharksburg in September. Van Dorn and Price vacillated and finally suffered defeat at Corn, Iuka and we know what happened to Bragg. In my opinion, these three failures. Fell to the end of the Confederacy long before Vicksburg and Gettysburg. As I mentioned Marshall earlier, we referred to Gettysburg as the Terry of the East. <laughs> <laughs> the Kentucky invasion offered many rewards, for it would pull federal armies northward, would gain supplies of the bluegrass, and indeed perhaps Kentucky itself for the Confederacy, along with thousands of its troops. It would provide a great morale boost for the entire Southern cause. The specific activities were Kirby Smith and his Army of Kentucky acting in concert with General Bragg moved out of Knoxville on October, rather August 1st, with 12,000 veterans. Now, you can follow this, of course, on your campaign map. It soon maneuvered Union General George Washington Morgan out of Cumberland Gap. He then routed 7,000 federal recruits under General William Bull Nelson at Richmond, which was one of the most decisive battles of the war. And by the end of the month, had moved on to Lexington, where he was wildly and enthusiastically received. The capital, Frankfort, and you see just to the left of Lexington a bit, it soon fell, and Louisville and Cincinnati were threatened general or excuse me governor todd of ohio wired general wright who was in command of the district headquartered at cincinnati as requested in your dispatches this morning i have called upon all the armed minute men who were called squirrel hunters of the state requesting each to take two days cook rations and a blanket they will pour in on you by the thousands. Well, they did, and General Wright didn't want to do it, but that's uh, another subject. Louisville, a city of 68,000 at that time, and of course a great federal storehouse and transportation center, near the great terror, the cold terror, that comes to a city waiting for what appears to be certain capture. The legislature had fled there from Frankfurt General John Hunt Morgan's cavalry was raiding in the outskirts. (coughs) Great masses of Confederate infantry were approaching from the east and the south. And General Nelson, a loser at Richmond, had declared martial law. Now to broaden the scope a bit, Second Manassas was fought just about this time on September 13th. Rumors flew such as 80,000 Rebs are on the way from West Virginia. The wharf areas were jammed with refugees, and on September 29th, as Gordon Whitman told us last month, Union General Jefferson C. Davis had killed General Nelson in the Gulf House over a dispute in command. Braxton Bragg, having moved almost 800 miles from Tupelo to Chattanooga by way of Mobile, because of the federal occupation of the direct railroad line. On August 28th, it fainted toward Nashville with the 28,000 well-trained troops of the Army of the Mississippi. Buell, because of General Andrew, excuse me, Governor Andrew Johnson's worries about Tennessee and not at all sure of Bragg's intentions and concerned about Kirby Smith's progress remained at Nashville with his 35,000 troops of the Army of the Ohio until September 7th. And indeed, even President Abraham Lincoln wired General Buell on the 8th. What degree of certainty had you that Bragg and his command is not now in the Valley of Virginia? And those of you who are familiar with Sam Watkins and Company H, or recall his some of his stories. He was, of course, with Bragg. He recalled marching up into Kentucky and called the pretty girls, the cider, the vans, the capture of Camp Dick Robinson with all its supplies. Dr. J.L. Polk of Parable wrote of the use of Confederate bonds and printed tickets, commonly called shin-plasters, one hand and a bayonet in the other to relieve farmers and merchants of their bounty the federal army moved out and reached bowling green you see that on the lower central portion of kentucky with general thomas still back in nashville with the rear guard and while bragg's army was at glasgow kentucky 30 miles away <coughs> suffering from indecision and from migraine headaches. A portion of his advance had attempted to capture the force under Colonel John Wilder at Munfordsville, which was guarding the vital Green River Bridge of the LNM Railroad. This force was repulsive, (laughs) causing the entire army to detour for morale's sake and go to that place. My private Sam Watkins made that march, remembering the question, hey, mister, how far is it to Montroseville?" And the answer, always, five miles, no matter how often he asked. General Wilder was overwhelmed and under a flag of truce, asked General Buckner of the Confederate Army what to do about it. General Buckner showed him the match Mass Confederate artillery, and of course, Colonel Wilder made a wise decision to surrender. Colonel Bragg delayed four days after taking the post and its 4,000 men, uh, which incidentally was the same day that uh, the Battle of Sharpsburg was fought, September (laughs) 17th, trying to entice Buell into attacking him. Kirby Smith urged Bragg to make a joint assault against louisville and so general bragg decided to move north with his command braxton outranked kirby but they were both independent commanders and so conferences and cooperation replaced <coughs> order and action but it has been said that in any military operation one poor general in command is better than two good ones cooperating <coughs> The Confederates suddenly turned off near Largetown and moved to that place. They were planning to rendezvous with the troops of Kirby Smith. And of course, General Bragg made a very questionable decision there because he opened the road to Louisville, the main federal supply base. He said later that he could not have held Louisville had he taken it and thus another morale problem would have occurred. He also stated that the command with the campaign was to be won by marching, not fighting. The proclamations were soon forthcoming from his headquarters in Bardstown, inviting all the Kentuckians to join the army. The negative results were surprising and startling, as Kirby Smith had discovered before Similar pronouncement but, uh, failed and led him to remark, "Their hearts are evidently with us, but their bluegrass and fat grass are against us." And General Bragg at one time mentioned that the women were urging the men to enlist, but the men were not enlisted. The absence of Kentuckian General Breckinridge and his orphan brigade was certainly a factor in this. He was still with Van Dorn in Mississippi. <laughs> According to this Dr. Pope and the the women were waving the rebel battle flag. Some of them explained, explained, oh, I am so happy my Savior has come. The men didn't quite have the same attitude. General Bragg then turned to politics, particularly the projected inauguration of Richard Hawes as the Confederate governor of Kentucky. At Frankfort, he was to replace G.W. Johnson, who had been killed at Shiloh. General Bragg was again feeling the importance of morale and recruiting at the expense of fighting. And, of course, had missed the chance to attack Buell as his army moved on by him to Louisville. With or without General Smith to help, the Army went on to Louisville, arriving on the 25th, despite the harassment of Joe Wheeler's cavalry, and enabling the very relieved General Bull Nelson to wire General Wright at Cincinnati: "Louisville is safe for God and liberty." The federal force was soon built to well over 100,000 men. Including many recruits. These men obtained by the frantic pleas to Governor Morton and other Midwestern leaders. The total Confederate forces totaled 47,000. General Halleck, way off in Washington, is very upset by the fact that Buell is not really doing anything in a decisive manner and ordered General Thomas, who would come up with Buell now, to relieve him. General Thomas and because of that general buell decided to move and so on october 1st the confederate army moved out southeast toward bardstown and again if you'll refer to your maps, there was a lot of pressure not only from House, general buell i came across a letter the other day at the chicago historical society Written by a private Charles Parr, the Company, 21st Wisconsin to his wife. We left Knapsack's overcoats at Louisville and made a forced march. The federal plan was to force the enemy's left back and compel him to concentrate as far as possible in any convenient line of retreat, while at the same time making a strong demonstration against his right, so as to mislead him as to the real point of the attack and prevent him from moving on my left flank, flank, and rear. General Bragg and his staff had left the army gone to Frankfurt to inaugurate the pause, leaving the command of the Confederate Army through the Bishop General Hope. Leonidas that is. The Union Army marched in three widely separated columns, each column was a Corps. We were commanded by Major General Alexander McCook of the famous Ohio Fighting McCooks. General Gilbert, who had been a captain just a few days before, now is a Major General, or perhaps a Brigadier General. Very confused. And the Third Corps was commanded by Major General Mm Thomas Crittenden of the well-known divided Kentucky family. General, Major General Thomas was General Buell's second in command, and because of the rather awkward situation, uh, was traveling with General Crittenden's Corps, rather than lose in. This separation was basically caused by a scarcity of water. Kentucky was very dry at that time. They had an extended drought, and of course this separation caused communication problems for the Federals. Bragg missed another chance to launch a flank attack against this move. Of course, he was off in Frankfurt. Ewell, per his plan, sent General Sill's division, along with Dumont's division, toward Frankfurt, which you'll see just to the east of Louisville, to divert Bragg. And to threaten Smith. Van Doren was losing at Corinth about this time. The Bishop General commanding the Confederate Army slowly retreated toward Harrisburg to the southeast, taking, taking a lot of captured supplies with him. Bragg responding to the Civil Division Pulled Withers Division of Folk's Corps to aid General Smith, thus prompting his friend, lieutenant, lieutenant and friend, later to be Lieutenant General William R.D., author of the Basic Confederate Drill and Tactics Manuals to write. Permit me from friendly relations so long existing between us to write plainly. Do not scatter your forces. Bragg, on the second, has ordered Pope to strike the enemy in flank and rear as they are advancing on Frankfurt. Pope replied that the main force was not moving in that direction, but indeed moving in his direction, which was, of course, verified by Joe Wheeler, and thus refused to follow orders, missing a chance to mess up, to, to uh, join up with General Smith. Hardy, conducting the Infantry Rear Guard action, stopped at Parable, and if you'll locate on that on your map, and then we can, of course, move to the other map. Because he realized that the continual skirmishing was increasing, and that he needed help. Smith was at Versailles. Some people might call it Versailles, but we're in Kentucky, and on the 5th, asked General Bragg, give me orders so that my movements may be in accord with the plan of operations you may adopt. R. D. requested reinforcements from Polk at Danville. Now Danville is very close to Perville, you see it doesn't fit to the right and below it. That night, October 7th, the hard-riding and effective Confederate cavalry commander, Joe Wheeler, warns him that he must attack at dawn strike the advanced Federal Corps and at the same time prevent the Federals from consolidating and taking advantage of a poor Confederate position. General Brigadier General Philip Sheridan's division of Gilbert's Corps <coughs> has camped on Doctors Creek. You can see that on your Perigot plant. This was a branch of the Chaplin River in the rough country near Perigot and at daylight on the 8th of October, a taxi poorly defended position, taking the pipes and the bad water below it. Hardy ordered St. John Liddell's Brigade of Buck observed the position, somewhat left of the Springfield Pike. The 5th and 7th Arkansas are sent out by Liddell but are repulsed by Colonel Danville Cook's Brigade of Sheridan. Sheridan is told repeatedly by Gilbert not to bring on an engagement. Hardy, of course, is close with 15,000 men in a carefully selected position, and Don Carlos Buell is not aware of this, for he had expected to meet the main body of the Confederates further southeast. He is not aware that his fake toward Frankfurt has worked and is off-form because he has been thrown from his force early that day. Mitchell's division of Gilbert has come up and seized the area of the creek near the pike. Alexander Cook and Thomas, who is traveling with Crittenden's Corps, are both ordered to move out at 3 a.m. on the 8th, prepared for battle. Thomas, looking far afield for water, receives a message late. Meanwhile, Pope has ordered the attack in order to attack the supposedly far apart Federals at dawn on the 7th and then join Kirby Smith. But instead, he calls for a council of war and adopts what became known as the famous defensive-offensive plan, that is to await the movement of the enemy and to be guided by events as they were developed, which is rather typical of a council of war. The 56-old General Polk feared a quick concentration of the enemy. Bragg, in response to Hardy's earlier request, sends Wharton's cavalry, and this, incidentally, was another one of those groups that had been raised by Forrest and then taken away from him, and Major General Benjamin Franklin's division of Polk's Corps to Peridot. Polk comes up and finally completes his line at 10 a.m. on Wednesday the eighth, even though Bragg had ordered him to attack at dawn. The line is about one mile west of the little town. Bragg established comes at about 9.30, establishing his headquarters at the Crawford House. And I've marked a little C on the map to the uh, to the upper right near the where you see the Chaplin River designated. Bragg had a heated discussion with the Bishop General regarding his failure to attack, but does not take command. He is concerned about the weak right end of the line, which does not cover his line of retreat or protect his water supply. Now that line is soon to change. Hardee sees dust about 1030, which turns out to be McCook's vanguard, and he tells Bragg, who assumes that it is a flanking movement. And asked Pope to move Cheatham's division from the far left to the far right, thus improving their position. The division moves out on a two-mile forced march through the little and now ghost town of Five Hundred. A march in the blazing sun and the choking dust to the new position on the new Macville Pike, a road that was not in existence at the time. But this does create the line that you see on your maps, uh, or at least. The line that they came from, as indicated by the dark lines to the right, it's about three and a half miles long, filled with 16,000 men running from the north to the south from the New Macville Pike to a point just south of the Springfield Pike. Wheeler's cavalry is on the left, having skirmished until dawn. You see them positioned considerably below the rest of the troops. Then Powell and Adams' brigades of Patton Anderson's division, somewhat exposed to a flank attack. Then Bushrod Johnson's brigade, with Patrick Cleveland's brigade behind him. These two, Buckner Brigades, and four batteries of artillery founding, forming the center of the Confederate line. Brown and Jones of Anderson, plus Sam Woods of Buckner, with the Vidal Reserve. Then Cheatham's division, now commanded by Andrew Jackson's nephew, Sam Donaldson, with the brigades of Savage, Stewart, and Manny flanked by Wharton's Texas Rangers. The left wing is commanded by Hardy; the right by Cheatham. Polk is in general command under Bragg. About 1 p.m., a small gale has begun to blow, cooling the Confederates and smothering their noise. McCook... He is now up with his 12,000 men, Kentuckian Major General, Lowell Harrison Rousseau, leading with Brigadier General James S. Jackson <coughs> division. Behind him, Sill's division is of course over at Frankfort. Rousseau turns off the old Macville Pike onto the Benton Road, which is a point near the name of Cook on your map. He has been ordered to link up his right with Gilbert's left, but cannot do so because of the rugged country. And I'm sorry I don't have a topographical map, but this country is difficult. There is a one-half-mile gap between the position established by Sheridan the night before and McCook. Gilbert's corps has been in line since noon, trying to use the terrain to best advantage. With Sheridan's division across and mainly north of the Springfield Pike, His right connected with Mitchell's division, which stands toward the Lebanon Road. Schultz, General Gilbert's third division, is in reserve behind Sheridan. Ewell has now made his headquarters at the Dorsey House. As indicated by a D to the extreme left center of the map, which is about two miles behind Gilbert on the Springfield Pike. McCook places Rousseau in line with Sheridan with the Loomis and Simonson Batteries near the Russell House. The Russell House is near the name Rousseau. Just to the left of it, you'll see sort of an R written in there. McCook then leaves to report to General Buell after telling an aide to place Jackson on a hill to the right of the old Macville Road holding him in column to to facilitate quick movement. On his return, he finds that Rousseau, looking for water, has deployed 800 yards in front, almost at a right angle to the rest of the line. Captain Loomis has seen dust on the yonder pike and so directs his fire, remarking to Rousseau, General, that's a large body of troops over there, I guess we have tread on the tail of mr bragg's coat jackson is now on rousseau's left with sheridan's west point classmate and enemy brigadier general william r carroll brigade holding the far left colonel webster's brigade next both following a curved line which held the line of the ridge but unfortunately exposed their planks parsons eight-gun battery i fourth u.s is with them Colonel Starkweather's brigade with Bush's Indiana and Stone's Kentucky batteries is on a ridge to the rear. Hardy immediately notices the gap between the two Federal Corps. He later describes the field, and you can see this in his report over at the Historical Society. The country near Perryville is boldly undulating, bordered by native forests. A creek called Chaplin Fork flows northwardly through the village. Uniting four or five miles beyond it with another little stream called Doctor's Fort. The space between the two from east to west is about a mile and a half. The position of Parable was drawn and offered many tactical and strategical advantages. The key to the enemy's position was at a point where the Old Macville Road crossed the Doctor's Fort. And I've indicated a circle on the map at that point. At 2 o'clock, just as McCook had moved to the right to check his line, Wharton, hidden by the hills and the winds, launched a terrific attack on the left flank of Jackson's troops. immediately followed by Manning and in conjunction with a frontal assault by the balance of Donaldson's division. The 16th Tennessee of the 1st Brigade led, first climbing a peak bluff that had hidden the entire division via a newly dug road. Then passing through a small forest bordered on the far edge by a rail fence. A moment's rest, then forward. A clear space of perhaps 120 yards followed, but before the regiment moved out, Parsons Battery inflicted heavy casualties from its forward position at practically point blank range on the parade ground formation attack. This is early in the war. The 15th Tennessee is now up and Brigadier General Alexander P. Stewart's Brigade is on the left, partially relieving the 15th of the crossfire on its left. Manny's Brigade is now felt, forcing the Federal line to bend back. Carnes, Tennessee battery moves toward the angle. The 1st Tennessee with Manny loses eight color bearers at the cannon discharge of Parsons. But his battery and the 20-day recruits of the 105th Ohio Volunteer Infantry are enfiladed. Pope orders the 1st Tennessee, Sam Watkins' outfit, under Colonel Fell, to take the Parsons battery, and they do so, almost capturing the gallant Parsons, who as a result is in tears. And the tragic part of this is that these guns were given up at Missionary Ridge without a fight. Carroll's men were routed, and by now the men of the 16th Tennessee have killed Brigadier General. Jackson, Carroll, a northern cousin of Jeff Stewart, rallies these men on the field of uh, cut and shocked corn one mile west behind the Benton Pike, but is killed when a shell fragment carries away in his left lung. Fortunately, Sheridan had visited him the previous night and they had made peace from their West Point quarrel. Jackson's reserve brigade, out of Starkweather, has arrived late having been cut off by other Union Corps, but by luck had arrived at a position in the rear which enabled their artillery to crossfire at the attackers. This portion of the Federal line held, but the right brigade of Jackson is in trouble for its commander, Colonel Wester, is now dead. Curiously, the three <coughs> men, Wester, Jackson, and Terrell, had discussed the chances of being hit in an engagement the night before the fight over a campfire. Their opinion was that the Doctrine of Probability indicated a very slight chance of any particular person being killed. Alexander McCook at 2.30, one half hour after the beginning of the attack, has sent a courier to Sheridan for help to try to prevent his left from being turned. Sheridan's division is hard pressed. Now you should locate that on your map uh, spanning the Springfield Pike separate from the other action I have just mentioned. Sheridan's division is hard pressed, so another courier is sent for aid to anybody he can find. The courier meets Schulte, who refers him to Gilbert, who refers him to Buell. Meantime, Buckner's division has attacked Rousseau's division, you can see that point. Hitting the hardy angle, the Federals, who have been looking for water, not a fight, fall back to a creek to a point about 50 yards west of the bottom house and hold. The bottom house is indicated by a B just to the left of that circle. And amazingly enough, it's still standing. The Washington artillery, the western section of it, is brought up by Adams, and they promptly employed Rousseau's men, forcing them back. But then the great Loomis Battery, stationed at the Russell House, Remember it, the R to the left of the quite a bit to the left of the B helps out desperate fighting develops Kentuckian fighting Kentuckian both divisions Buckner's and Rousseau represent a typical border state division Confederates pour through the gap hitting the federal right An aide returning General Rousseau founding sitting on his horse between the lines with his hat on a sword point encouraging his men while bullets and shells were flying around him thick as hail. I expostulated with him for exposing himself in such a manner when he informed me in his most expressive, but not very elegant language that he knew what he was doing. I finally treated him further, calling his attention to the death of General Jackson and his consequences and finally succeeded in getting him to the rear. The Russell barn is struck and fired. The Federals are forced to retire to it, and there they hold. Cleaver has sustained a painful ankle wound when his mount, Dixie is killed. He then is wounded again, stays in command. Bushrod Johnson is wounded. Hardy, however, keeps up the pressure, and the Federals are slowly forced back of the Russell house, <coughs> one mile in all. So that's one mile on this front and one mile and the northern front. Bragg shifts Stewart's and finally savages brigades to aid Hardy in forcing the gap. McCook's third message finally gets results from Gilbert, who orders Gooding's Illinois Brigade of Mitchell to aid Rousseau, and it moves from behind Sheridan's left to help. Colonel E.A. Otis of the 79th Pennsylvania recalled, there they come again, cried 100 voices raid ground formation empty cartridge boxes filled from those of the dead rifle barrels too hot to touch 35 horses piled lifeless around Bush's battery. And at 5 p.m or so turning to one of his aides exclaimed impatiently <coughs> god's name will the sun never go down then gooding saves the day his brigade occupies the high ground at the intersection of the old Macville pike that road that again is right close to the Russell house near rousseau filling a gap and flanking anderson's oncoming attack buckner's next attack hits them but finney's fifth wisconsin battery sent along with gooding helps and gooding holds the high ground against repeated attacks by wood's brigade wood is wounded Gooding's course is shot and he is captured, his brigade losing one third of its men. The 75th Illinois, a typical brigade of Gooding's, was mustered in the Proffittstown area, Roscoe Mathis' hometown for you, those of you that remember him. Mustered in on September 2nd, and trained in battle in Perryville one month later, losing 225 men out of 709. Sheridan, a new brigadier, and division commander of nine days standing, the slowed down from the early morning vigorous start and at mid-afternoon finds himself in trouble, fighting off the initial attack of the brigade of Adams and Powell of Patton Anderson. Sheridan has aided Lytle of Bisseau by using artillery fire against the flank of the Confederates rushing into the gap between his line and Lytle's but has ignored Colonel Van McCook's to use infantry against the onrushing Federalist. Uh, Sheridan later said he filled, feared a concentration of rebel artillery fire, but really had failed to grasp the need for an offensive movement against a very small force in front of him. Adam's brigade having drifted off to the right, meant that his division was, was fighting one brigade. Gilbert, informed of Sheridan's request for aid, ordered Walker's brigade of show to the rescue but the men were so green that they were unable to follow simple marching commands. Remember, a lot of these men joined the army just two weeks before at Louisville. So Steedman's brigade is ordered to fill the gap between the corps, but he fails to receive the order until 6 p.m. Carlin, of uh, Mitchell's division, at about 4 p.m. is sent to counterattack against Powell, and he knifes through the position catching them off balance as they were forming for another attack, and goes to and beyond Paraville before he realized that he was isolated. Of course, the Confederates had uh, long since abandoned Paraville. He, of course, retreated. Thomas and Crittenden, with 28,000 men, have been in the vicinity of the Lebanon Pike, three miles away since 11 a.m. You see them in splendid isolation on your Paraville map. They were opposed only by Wheeler's 1,200 troops and two guns, but they were very well screened by Wheeler. The Second Corps finally deployed to link onto Gilbert, and darkness sets in. The bishop is almost captured while checking his line near the Macville benton intersection, but taking advantage of the near-darkness and the mixture of blue and gray, shouts an order to the Federals, turns his horse, and spurs off. He then orders Liddell, who had been in reserve since 11, to straighten the line at that point. St. John does this with a will, catch, capturing Alexander Cook's baggage and many men. The Confederates, noting the Federal reinforcements on the left, retreat to harrisburg at night and a junction with Curry Smith. The next day, one of Rousseau's aides, dispatched to find the headquarters wagon and hence breakfast, was hailed by General McCook and invited him for breakfast. McCook then informed him that he had taken possession of the missing wagon and that the to have it back. Smith wrote to Bragg on the night in Lawrenceburg, what are your views and what is the situation of affairs with your left wing? Well, the situation was a sad one for everyone. 4,300 federal casualties out of 22,000 men engaged along with 3,400 Confederates out of 16,000, about 20%. The villagers were horror-stricken. A typical report, I can remember seeing Dr. J.P. Hughes of Springfield at the old Jordan Peters' home, in the yard under the trees, at a large table, assisting in amputating the limbs, and my, what a pile of arms and legs. In Harrisburg, all public facilities were turned into hospitals, except the New Episcopal Church, St. Philip's, which had imported Italian stained-glass windows, which made it too dark for operating. Here the next day after the battle, the Bishop General entered, left his sword in the vestibule, and asked that the bell be full. Then, tears streaming down his cheeks, he prayed, saying, Peace to the land, and blessings on friends and foe alike. Following the battle, Squirebottom, whose home, as I mentioned, survived the fighting at the Gap, searched the woods for Confederate dead and had a cemetery dug where the most bodies were found, the place where Donaldson's men had formed facing Parsons battery. The Union dead were placed in a new national cemetery on the field, but later moved to Camp Nelson. The retreat was handled badly, along with a follow-up. Bragg and Smith formed a battle line near Harrodsburg, going back to your campaign map. On the 10th, and soon Buell, reinforced by seal, faced him. Bragg again retreated in spite of a miracle, that of Confederate superior forces, making a stand after crossing the Duck River. Buell carefully followed him until the Confederates began a more active retreat following the news of the defeated Corinth. The two commanders had indifferent fortunes after the battle. Buell would use 22,000 out of 61,000 to obtain a strategic victory, and was replaced by General Rosecrans, kranz and later subjected to a military commission for his failure to aggressively follow Bragg. Bragg would use 16,000 out of 28,000 to obtain a partial tactical success was subjected to public censure and criticism of engagements screened a retreat through kentucky to the cumberland gap and as our favorite sam walkman said both both sides claimed victory both quit bragg's officers went on to greater fame hope cheatham manning R. D., buckner liddell cleaver wheeler and the of Buell's officers joined him in obscurity Alexander McCook and Tom Christensen at Chickamauga, Gilbert, Schulte, Perlbutt after the commission, while Rousseau, Carlin, Sheridan, McCook, Thiedman, Dan McCook that is, and Thomas were heard from again. The 700 plus pages of the commission report held that Gilbert should have reinforced McCook quickly, if only to save his own point. It also held that Buell should have been on the field or else prepared for quick communication with the front. Testimony did reveal that a signal corps operation had been set up before noon. Testimony also revealed that Buell would, would heard the remark at 2 p.m. that artillery firing indicates a great waste of powder over there. <clears throat> In his defense, the winds were tricky that day. Sound was deflected down instead of up. The report also held that Buell should have cut off Bragg's retreat using Crittenden's corps, and failing in this, should have attacked Bragg at Camp Dick Robinson. Buell rebutted the charges, saying that Crittenden's delay in moving into position prevented his use, that one-third of his army consisted of raw recruits, and that the Confederates had a good position or could select one at any point on the retreat. Further, that the high banks of the Kentucky and Dick Rivers made crossing in the face of the opposition impossible. The incomplete and sometimes conflicting statistics show that McCook <coughs> suffered three-fourths of the total Union loss. Mitchell's division, 510, 500 of these being Gooding's brigade, Sheridan, 400, Choke's 10, and Crittenden's entire Corps, too. The Federal losses were heavy. All along the line, especially on the right, Consideration of these figures tells his story. Much is made of the failure of Polk to attack the isolated corps of Gilbert at dawn, of his piecemeal attacks, uh, Bragg's failure to concentrate, of uh, the joint authority set up between Bragg and Smith, of Bragg's lack of a staff. The rigid department set up of Jefferson Davis was also called to account because, of course, this necessitated the cooperation rather than Direct ordering of Bragg to Kirby Smith. Hardy, writing in the following year, said, if you choose to rip the Kentucky campaign up, you can tear Bragg into tatters. Union criticism, in addition to the commission charges, covers Buell's poor concentration of his forces, and his failure to capitalize on his success with Sill's diversionary movement, and the poor use of artillery. Both commanding generals can be taken to task for their poor efforts to find out where the enemy was. The Grand Confederate Offensive had failed on all fronts. The Upper Midwest was saved and the war would grind on for many months. The men would fight and die. The generals would continue to make mistakes. This scene perhaps typifies the general futility of the and the war quote, the battleground of Paraville is adjacent to the Springfield Road, and from it can be seen the town and large college buildings. After the sun went down on the evening of the 8th, and the storm of shot and shell was over, General Pope and others stood in the doorway of the college, overlooking the hill. The music from the Union camp floated upon the breeze, the old familiar air of home sweet home. Brought tears to the eyes of the war begrimed Confederates and silence reigned. When the band from the Northern Post had ended, the Confederate band at the college repeated in harmonious notes the same refrain from Old Sweet home Brooks, I want to
0: thank you for. excellent presentation as you always give us and on behalf of the entire roundtable, table i'm going to present to you our service plan with a photograph of and despite his faults he may have changed the war if he had done a few things differently nevertheless Braxton bragg thank you glenn thank you any questions for brooks
1: yes sir um fuel in his report makes note of several things brooks uh that he felt contributed uh, to his failure if you want to put it that strong uh one of which was that the armies approached the battlefield on two different roads and therefore couldn't arrive simultaneously the other was that they had gone over an area that had been uh, Seen other armies already, so they couldn't get adequate forage. I would appreciate hearing your assessment of whether these were really factors in, uh, in the outcome. Well, as I mentioned, he had to march in columns because of the scarcity of water, which did create a problem. And he did not really realize where the Confederates were. He knew that he was close, but he really didn't know. and. This made it difficult for him to concentrate. And so far as supplies were concerned, as I mentioned, he left Louisville quickly, and they did leave something behind. But on the other hand, Louisville was the great federal supply base, and they had a lot of widening with them. But he said the without shoes. Some of them certainly were, but not really very many. They were. In his defense, the fact that he had 100,000 men uh, it was a great burden for him because so many of them were not properly equipped and they certainly weren't properly trained. So he did have a, a, a problem there, no question about it. In his opposition, was just the opposite. They were, every one was a veteran. What's that kind of question mm-hmm. for you?
0: Uh, on the battlefield tour uh, out to Fredericksburg, we saw two to the rear incidents mm-hmm. and you talked about one this evening mm-hmm. and i just wonder how common were to the rear incidents in the war uh amongst general officers was this a common thing does it does it occur frequently in the
1: literature No, i don't know that it occurs frequently but it certainly occurred uh, more often early in the war uh, at Harrowville and in other areas Confederate troops were often in blue, and often Union troops were in blue or combinations, and there was, there was a constant uh, confusion as to uh, what side they were on. Now, this is a difference to the rear, because, of course, he was not encouraging his men. He had simply blundered into enemy territory. But that happened uh, fairly often early in the war, I think. And it's always intriguing. Uh, and especially to contemplate uh, the Bishop General, those of you who uh, remember his uh, physique, large, pompous, it was impossible for him to gallop off, but yet he realized that he had best to do that if he were going to survive. But he had the presence of mind to stop the enemy, command them, and then leave. Huh? Tom? Disregarding uh, uh, Bragg's pessimism and his personality for a moment this is one of the great might have been was he correcting the defense of von louisville what he been at What it would he have been able to maintain it? that's that's a good question uh there was still lots of the federals controlled the, the river uh it certainly could come down from cincinnati they had to, they had the gunboat it, it could have been a great problem uh on the other hand uh, he could have attracted a lot of recruits had he stayed in kentucky for a while uh, so it's a great debatable point Uh, uh, beauregard had originally envisioned destroying the canal at louisville and heavily fortifying the place Uh, how much value that would have been is problematical but uh, if bragg had stayed there very long he he could have uh, been a little difficult to push out of there and it it, it wasn't somewhat exposed position but still uh, he had a lot of things in his favor so i I personally think it it, it might very well have worked. I was wondering, with the
0: failure of the Perryville campaign, didn't this also have a negative effect in Richmond? In other words, the Western concentration Plot was able to continue to push for expenditures of troops and lives when actually Bragg's own eyes told him
1: people in Kentucky were not interested in the Southern cause. Right. Absolutely. And of course, Historically it was difficult to interest the authorities in Richmond in Western Total? Uh, well, I noticed that uh, Bishop Polk selected a position where his back was to a river. Now it was a very drought in conducting those days. It was it a very portable river in those days? That he was pushed back oh yes was it, it was him. uh and uh that's that's why Wheeler Urged an early attack because he didn't think very much of that position. You're absolutely right. Was it portable? Oh, yes, yes. Bill? Mm-hmm. So? Uh, the question about the campaign you've spoken
0: a little bit about the Union troops uh, having been largely in the Army and the military, anywhere from 45 mm-hmm. uh, days to six weeks, uh, roughly, uh, and most of Frank's troops being veterans of other engagements what's your assessment on why they did so well why did they stand up and fight If you read the regiment alone you find very few deserters indeed that's right uh what's your, why did they do so well were these generals some of whom them in security such bond styling figures or were they a good tactical consultant well that's
1: that's rather theoretical uh, it requires a theoretical answer i think a great many of the Midwest, midwestern farm boys enlisted because they wanted to save the union they also had an economic reason they wanted to open the mississippi river because that had raised havoc for the economics of the territory and of course there was this third fear item of the confederate invaders and all the frantic recruiting posters and so on once those boys got down there, uh, they were good. They, as you said, they they stayed in there. They didn't, they, they didn't very many deserters, and they didn't desert after this battle either, in spite of uh, the futility of it. Thank you
0: again, Brooks. January, and we're going to hear from Dr. Brady McWinney uh, from the History Department at the University of Alabama. He's going to talk to us on Confederate generals, their strengths and
1: weaknesses. I uh, hope you all have pleasant holidays, and we'll hope to see you all again next year.